The scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is God's word. Amen. You may have a seat. We've been looking at how the gospel is for all of life. The gospel is not merely that which brings us into the entrance of the kingdom of God, into relationship with him, but it is the way in which we are to live out our lives. And so as we've been looking at each area of our lives and how the gospel shapes each area, This morning, we are looking at how the gospel shapes our parenting. As soon as I say the word parenting, I expect that there's a number of different emotions going on in our congregation. There are some who feel confident. They've been doing a pretty good job in raising their children, and their children are turning out to people who love the Lord and are walking in righteousness, and so you look at this sermon as one that will probably affirm the great job that you've been doing, and if it isn't, then probably what I'm preaching isn't right. Uh, Then there are those who uh, probably are starting to feel a little deflated. You feel that maybe you haven't done all that you should have been doing as a parent. And as you listen to the sermon, you might be checking off saying, I wish I had done that. I I failed there. And we can easily come away loaded with guilt. And there are those who are looking at this sermon with some sense of expectancy and some anxiety. You're either just beginning your parenting or you're looking forward to it down the road and you're expectantly waiting, what's going to be said about parenting? And yet you are so anxious because what if you blow it? You feel under pressure. And this sermon will probably add to that, seemingly. And then there are those of you who feel disenfranchised by the subject. Because we're talking about parenting. You're not a parent or you've been done with your parenting for quite a while. Or you don't ever anticipate being a parent, and so you feel there's no reason to listen this morning. Well, to the latter, I say, the principles that are being taught this morning are about more than parenting. They are about relationships. And so there's much that you will gain from this sermon if you do listen to it. You are a part of this body. You have the Word of God before you, so I encourage you. Uh, to see what God would teach you this morning. For the rest of us, I trust that the words that we hear today will draw us to the gospel 
again, all, really all of us, to the gospel in such a way that we build our identity on the cross of Christ, not on if we are parents or how well we parent, so that we are freed from the anxiety that surrounds parenting and we can walk with God from where we are right now into the future that he has for us. So let's pray. Our Lord, this, what we're going to share this morning are spiritual truths. It is only your spirit that can really even open our hearts, can speak to us precisely what you want us to hear and learn. Lord, I am a certainly faulty vessel for this, but thank you that you can trump me uh, by the words that you speak through your spirit to each one of our hearts this morning. In Christ we pray in glory. Amen. Paul's charge in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 to fathers is revolutionary. Paul was speaking into a culture where fathers were the supreme and absolute authority. What they said went. Just as we saw a couple weeks ago that he spoke in chapter 5 of Ephesians to husbands who were also the absolute authorities within their families. What happens when we feel we're the absolute authority is we use that in a domineering way. And we see family after family, father after father, fall into this error of running the house simply as they want it for their welfare so others serve them. But Paul breaks through that here when he says, don't provoke your children to anger. And then he says, train up your children. And the word train up here is literally nourish. It's only used one other time in Scripture, and that's chapter 5 of Ephesians, when Paul has told husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Love your wives, take care of your wives for you as though they are a part of you because they are. You become one. So take care of them just like you nourish your own body. Nourish them nourish your children. And so fathers are called to not use their authority for their selfish purposes, but use their position to live their lives and lead for the benefit of their wives, the benefit of their children. Parenting should first be seen as us entering into our children's lives to nourish them, to Give them that which is life-giving. Paul says, be sensitive to the feelings of your children. That isn't something that was going on in the culture that day. Don't provoke them to anger. Don't parent in such a way that they become angry. Colossians chapter 3, verse 21 says, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. It's saying, be careful of the way you lead your family so you do not become, they don't become angry or discouraged. 
And so this is culturally transforming. Just tell the fathers to your role is to nourish, not to dominate. Your method is to be sensitive to the feelings of your children. You know, Paul gets a lot of bad press today. Some look at what he said in Scripture and they say he's a misogynist. Paul, through his use of the gospel, these passages in Ephesians 5 and talking to wives, has really, really changed the culture from a culture that was misogynist, from a culture that was domineering. Our culture has simply gone beyond Scripture but we should be thankful to the way Paul used the gospel of Christ to transform Western culture. So I want to take a look at this passage and just take each phrase in the passage and how it should affect our parenting. Now, a lot of what I'm going to say is the way I or other experts see how you would apply these truths. Not everything I say is God's word. We're trying to understand what God has said so that how, what does it make sense in the way we apply it? So the first is fathers do not provoke your children to anger. Now, how do we provoke our children to anger? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones gives us a nice little list. He says, first of all, we have to control ourselves. If we discipline out of anger, we're going to produce anger. Secondly, never be capricious. A parent who does one thing today and the contrary thing tomorrow is not capable of sound discipline. It leaves children insecure. Three, never be unreasonable or unwilling to hear your child's case. Four, never be selfish. There's nothing more deplorable than a domineering parent. I'm referring to the kind of parent who imposes his or her personality upon the child and who is always crushing the child's personality. Next, discipline must never be administered in a mechanical manner. There must always be a reason for it, and that reason should always be made plain and clear. Discipline must never be too severe. If a punishment meted out is disproportionate to the misdemeanor, the crime, or whatever it is, it cannot possibly do good. It will inevitably give the one who is punished a sense of injustice. Never humiliate another person. Never discipline in a way that the child feels that he is being trampled upon and being utterly humiliated in your presence and still more in the presence of others. Another commentator adds, effectively the apostle is ruling out excessively severe discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging, and condemnation. It's a You have a nice list here. I have used many of these means. Why? We read this list and it's pretty clear, yeah, these are wrong. Why have I used these means? Because I am trying to control my children so that I get the outcome 
that I want? And why do I need this particular outcome of godly kids who other people admire are successful in every area of life? Why do I need that? Because I build my identity upon my children. I brag about my children's successes. So you will think, oh, he must be a pretty good dad. I get embarrassed when my children misbehave in public because I'm wondering what all the parents around me are thinking of me. I become anxious about the way my children are going to turn out, overly anxious and consumed. Why? Because it reflects upon me. You see, I've made my children an idol. And what that does is it blocks any sense of love that I have for him because I've made parenting them about me and not about them. When one of my sons was uh, fairly young, I was concerned about his development. And I had incredible anxiety. I couldn't even sleep at night. And so I went to a counselor. And the counselor listened for a while, and he said, Do you realize that your son is carrying your feelings about him? He's a little boy. He has enough issues in life to carry on his shoulders to take responsibility for the emotional life of his father. So how do I get rid of that anxiety? I change the foundation of my identity and how I was able to move beyond that debilitating anxiety was to find my identity, not in my child, but in the Christ who saved me and his gospel. And then I was freed to look at my parenting as God wanted me to parent. And I knew that I can't control any outcome. I can control how I parent and if I follow God in my parenting. And so I took the burden, hopefully took the burden off my sons for my emotional life and started making my parents about me and God. And if when I fell down, I thank God for the cross and the forgiveness to take all the guilt of my bad parenting away. So how do we gain an identity in Christ in the gospel? It's we look to him for our our sense of significance. What God, how, how I matter to God must become more important than how I matter to anyone else. And do I matter to God? Am I important to him? First Peter says, God paid for me. He paid for you, not with gold or silver or precious stones but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
God sent his son. He loved me so much. He loves you so much. He sent his son to die for me. I am the prodigal son who returns to the father because I don't like the life that's been happening to me. Selfishly, I return to the Father. And how does the Father respond to me? In the depth of my sins, when I've taken all the gifts of God and used them against what God wanted for me. My Father rushes out to me. And he embraces me. And he kisses me and he takes his robe off and places it on me. And he takes his signet ring, which he does business by, and he places that on my finger to do God's business. I am that loved by the Father. Jesus Christ died for me and he calls me his bride. That's how much he loves me. When I find my security and my identity in that can rest emotionally in every area of my life, especially as a parent. And then I trust God for the future of the lives of my children. And I look to my own responsibility. I carry the burden God has given me. What kind of parent does he want me to be? And that's what I focus on and concentrate on. And therefore there's the barrier between love, myself, my sons, is gone because the selfishness isn't there anymore. And we're free to love. And of course, love has to be the foundation of our relationship with our children. See, our kids know if we love them. And the first question becomes... Do I love them? There are times they're unlovable. It could be they're embarrassing me or, uh, you know, Christians are going to think bad of me, especially as a pastor. i got to get my identity in Christ. It could be they ruin the car and I, I, I'm going to explode. Why? Because my car is more valuable to me than my son. My son has touched my identity and my car, the thing that is my idol. See, if I look at my anger and my anxiety, uh, my, or my depressions, usually uncovering the idols in my lives, my life. When I find my identity in Christ and not in those, again, I am free to love my child. And then the question becomes, we can love our children, yet they may not feel it because we're speaking the wrong language for them. What language should we be speaking to help fill up their tank of love? Uh, Ross Campbell wrote the book, How to Really Love Your Child. It sold over a million copies, and I've liked it as simple three points and how to express love. First, eye contact. Eyes have been called the window of the soul. Campbell points out, a child uses eye contact with parents and others to feed emotionally. The more a parent makes eye contact with a child as a means of expressing love, 
the more the child is nourished with love and the fuller the child's emotional life. We aren't connecting if we aren't looking into each other's eyes. Secondly, physical affection. It seems the most obvious way of conveying our love to a child is by physical contact. Surprisingly, studies show that most parents touch their children only when necessity demands it or when helping them dress, undress, or get into the car. Yet, how much do we like hugs? How much does that say? The pat on the back, the arm around the shoulder. It doesn't stop simply when they're... I mean, they seem want to jump in our laps when they're little. But still, touch conveys love. And then thirdly, he says, focus. Campbell again says, focused attention is giving a child our full undivided attention in such a way that he feels without doubt that he is completely loved, that he is valuable enough in his own right to warrant parents' undistracted watchfulness, appreciation, and uncompromising regard. Have you ever been in conversation while well, listening to a child speak to you and you kind of look over there and all of a sudden the hands, their hands go, whoop, <laughs> and move your face directly into theirs. Okay, they're saying, I want your focused attention. These express love. And I'd like to add one more. Fun, enjoyment. When you really think of you are enjoying time together, what do you feel in your heart? You feel so connected and so loved. So, the surest way to create anger or discouragement in a child is to not truly love them and express that love. What we need to do is get our identity from Christ, from the gospel, so we get ourselves out of the way, our selfishness is removed, so we are free to love and then express that love. says, bring your children up in the discipline of the Lord. So the word discipline, what comes to our minds immediately is punishment. Discipline is, is punishment. And that is a part, and it's a big part of this word discipline. But the word discipline is much bigger than simply punishment or keeping a child in line. Discipline really is about training. You are training up a child. So when we say that word, what comes to mind? You might think of a trainer at the gym. You might think of a life coach or a mentor, a voice coach. Uh, and what does a trainer do? A trainer, first of all, is looking at what, what's the goal? What are we trying to accomplish here? And so what are we trying to accomplish in the lives of our children? And very often it's, we want this perfect outcome where our children look just the way we want them to look. In my first year of seminary, I used to pray daily for the youth group that I had led. And my prayers would go something like this. Lord God, please keep these kids from drugs, alcohol, and premarital sex. Don't let them buy into the world's view. Amen. And after praying this for a few months, in the middle of that prayer, it was almost as though God said to me, Bruce, 
Is that what you really, really want for those youth? And I said, well, no. What I really, really want is them to love God with all their hearts and souls and minds. That's what I want. And of course, what I think was God's answer was, then why don't you pray that way? And so I prayed, Lord, it would be nice if you kept them from (laughs) drugs, alcohol, (laughs) premarital sex, but God, if you have to take them through some of those things, so the end result is they love you with all your heart, their faith becomes real, and so be it, because that's your desire, God, and I want it to be mine. So what is it we're really after? And if we're after love, then we're after something that's in their hearts. So to train up a child properly, we have to shepherd a child's heart, which is, of course, the title of the book that Ted Tripp wrote and has refreshed. And Ted Tripp says this, The central focus of parenting is the gospel. You need to direct not simply the behavior of your children, but the attitude of their hearts. You need to show them not just the what of their sin, but the why. You must help them see that God works from the inside out. Therefore, parenting cannot simply be about well-behaved children. It's what's happening in their hearts. So, if we're going to minister to their hearts, then our hearts have to beat for God itself. That means we have to understand the mind and the heart the affections of Christ and and allow the Spirit of God to make them ours. We need to model that and live that out in front of them and with them. We're after, God's after the hearts and we should be too. Another aspect of discipline is, is, is the way in which we train them up. Our normal way is to use words. Words and more words. Biblical way, the way trainers train people up is they enter into the experience. If you're teaching someone a saxophone, you don't say, well, that's a saxophone. Here's a drawing of a saxophone. And what you do is you pick it up and you you move your fingers on those little keys there. Okay, go do that. You actually get a saxophone and you put it in your hands and you help position it right and you put their fingers on the keys and off you go. So I love Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7, a father is trying to teach his son about the enticements of an immoral woman. And what he does is he takes that son and enters that son, in his teaching at least, into the experience of what a man who falls to that temptation goes through. And so he talks about seeing the immoral woman and the enticements of the immoral woman and how you fall and then the absolute results of that. He brings them into that experience. And to really train up, we need to bring children, youth, or teenagers into experience. And the way we teach and the experiences we have in life. And then, if we're going to train up a child, it does take addressing the misbehavior. 
And the warning I want to make here is, if we love our children, we have to apply the appropriate response and discipline or chastisement to the misbehavior. For instance, if we say, you know, don't play near the house, don't play ball near the house because you will break, you could, you could break a window. Now, if the child, if my son goes, takes a baseball bat, walks up to the window and goes, smash, we call that willful, dis- willful disobedience. And strict discipline has to be applied right there to address the will because it is a battle of the will. If the child says, well, my friends are coming over, he says in his mind, we can play ball and we won't break a window. He hits the ball and breaks the window. I call that not willful disobedience, but childish immaturity. And that needs to be addressed in a whole different way in what we call the uh, natural consequences of sin. We could say, okay, we're going to go out and you're going to buy a window and you're going to stay with me as we put that window in together. And so the child sees himself not as so much misbehaving and willfully disobedient, but understands it's with childish irresponsibility and I'm going to pay the price when, if, if I don't grow up and, and, and listen to these things. So be careful of considering every act of misbehavior as one of willful disobedience and we need to control the will. There is childish irresponsibility. And by the way, there is childish response to our failures as a parent. Many children rebel because they do not feel loved by their children. Children become angry because of the way we discipline them. They become discouraged because of our failures as a parent. We should be very careful in the way we address those things. Do not address them as though they are willful disobedience. And Paul says, bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. This word instruction speaks to admonishing through your words. Training is you get involved and you're right there walking with them. Admonishment is giving them warnings, teaching them the way. Now, we used to live in a Judeo-Christian culture where the values and the morals of our society were very similar to those of the church. In that time, most of our instruction simply had to be of that act does not line up with our values. That's a misbehavior. This is the way you should behave when these are your values. That is no longer the case. We live today in a post-Christian culture where the values of our society around us are ever-growing more and more in secularism. And so I believe our instruction has to be much bigger than here is the behavior that you should be having. It has to enter down into the child themselves and their worldview and their point of view. 
our instruction has to include addressing what our children and our teens are going through in the broader culture and showing them how Christianity speaks to that culture. We need to be able to show them that Christianity makes greater sense than secularism. We need to show them how an understanding of the triune God who is the creator, how all of life flows out of them. For instance, why is love the central value of almost everybody? Does evolution explain that? Survival of the fittest lead us to that? Or does the fact that there is a triune God who's been in a love relationship from eternity past say, yes, life is going to be about love? Where do we get our values? What is the foundation of our values? Our society teaches them, but what's the foundation? Is it personal choice? Or are they grounded in an eternal God of love and justice? Why is justice so important? Because it is true of God himself. What's our purpose in life? We make up a purpose. What's the foundation? Are you secure in that that kind of purpose where you make your, your own up? Or is it grounded in a God and who he is in his relationship to us? Truth. Is there a truth? And what happens if you don't have truth in life? We need to show them that not only there is truth, but truth sets you free. And how do you deal with your guilt and your failure? How do you truly get rid of your guilt? And not just wishing it away, but have it truly cleansed. It's only through the gospel. And how do we grow into people who are both humble and confident? We need to show them it's through the gospel. See, Christianity speaks to every area of life. Christ himself said, the I am, I'm the bread of life, I'm the, uh, the light of the world, I'm the resurrection and the light, I'm the true vine, I'm the, the shepherd, I am. Christ addressed those all of life, not just teach, teach our youth how, to, what to, how to, to obey God, but the whys of life as well and the solution in Christ. And then we need to show them the hows. How do I live the Christian life? How do I live out of the gospel? How do I develop a prayer life that actually brings me into real intimacy with God? How do I I love my neighbor while still thinking they're lost without Christ? How do I value everyone in society equally? How do I love the unlovable? How do I forgive myself? How do I walk in the Spirit of God? Our instruction needs to be so broad today that it's almost overwhelming. Let the church come in and help you with that. Because we are a body together. God made us to be interdependent where we all have different gifts where we can help each other. And that's what we are striving toward as a church to help families come alongside families, not to replace them or supplant them, 
we're working hard on our, our children's programs to teach not just Bible stories or ways to live, but the big picture of where it flows from and what this truly means for our lives. We've had a big emphasis with our youth on discipleship, where we now have life touching life. And we hope to continue that. So please, take advantage of what the church itself and all of you are offering to each other. So, we all struggle as parents with wanting to be successful. Elizabeth Elliot wanted to be successful. If you know Elizabeth Elliot, she is a missionary and uh, teacher, professor, author, very well known. And she said this as she was trying to discern, am I a successful parent? The other day, I was trying to see if I could in some succinct way describe what I would call successful parenting. In other words, when the sun sets on my season for having children living under my roof, when all the little nestlings have flown the coop, what will I consider a job well done? To satisfy my curiosity, I began to scribble down a short list of thoughts that popped into my head. I wrote down most of the typical things that Christian parents might think of. A successful parent develops strong relationships within the family. A successful parent should have children that are hardworking. Successful parents should have children who are kind to those around them. Successful parent has children who love the Lord with all their heart. A successful parent has children that pray for their friends and future spouse. Successful parent has children that have a daily quiet time with God and so on. I surveyed my list and scrutinized each entry to determine if I thought it really embodied what it meant to be a successful parent. Do I really have to have hardworking kids to be a successful parent, really? No, I crossed that off my list. What if my kids don't read their Bibles regularly? Have I blown it? No, I crossed that off my list too. One by one, I pondered each entry, and one by one, they were each crossed off until only two remained. My list of parenting achievements boiled down to just two points. Our children must know that we, their father and I, love them more than we love ourselves, that our love for them is immeasurable. And our children must know that God loves them so much that he laid down his life for them, that his love for them is immeasurable. That's it. If they know these two things, our love and God's love, just those two things, then I believe we have been successful parents. Why? Because ultimately, it's not about what we do or what they do. Parents screw up and kids rebel. It's about love, our love for them. Our deep, never-ending, quickly forgiving, thinking they're the best thing since life's bread love for them. But even more importantly than our love for them is God's incredible love for them. His suffering, substitutional, sacrificial, grace-giving love for them. I would die for my children because I love them. Jesus died a horrific death on the cross because he loved them. And as their parents, my husband and I, must make sure my kids understand these things deep in their soul. Our Father... We thank you for your love for us, that it is immeasurable. 
I pray that we experience that in such a reality and with such depth that we can pass that on to those under our care. And Father, I pray that that love that we feel from you would free us from finding our identity anywhere but in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that our love will flow freely to our kids so that they would know we love them more than anything else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.